figure if I didn't put a stop to that, it never would end, which is a good thing. Good evening, everybody. I'm beginning to get used to coming up here. I'm afraid if I stick around much longer, though, I'm going to get put on a committee. Robert's been talking to me already. And uh, I was listening to myself on, on my CD, and, and before you wonder why I would do such a thing, I'll tell you that um, it's very helpful to listen to yourself if you're trying to improve. And so I'm my own worst critic. And anyway, as I listen to myself, I noticed I'm, I'm pretty serious up here, aren't I? Pretty stern kind of guy. Must not have any sense of humor. Well, it, um, I can try to lighten it, but you know, to be honest, the topic is one that doesn't lend itself too easily to humor. And in fact, the circumstances we find ourselves in, in the church, are such that I think maybe I'm working hard to counter what is such a strong tide, a strong unending stream of poor teaching on this issue. It seems as though I have to work extra hard. Maybe not, but uh, I'll do my best to to make it a little lighter if I can. One other thing I wanted to address tonight. Uh, last week I mentioned I have a website that you can go to if you wanted to download any teaching I do uh, for free. Uh, and I mentioned it's my name, stephenarmstrong.com. But you can spell Stephen uh, more than one way. Uh, my name is with a P-H, Stephen with a P-H. But you can spell it with a V, of course, Steve or Stephen with a V. And I've been to those sites. If you put in stevearmstrong.com or Stephen with a V, you won't go to my site. And I, I was curious one day. I went to those places to see what was there. Have you ever gone to a random site on the Internet? Let's just say that I may be the only Steve Armstrong in eternity. At least based on what I can see so far. So if you're looking for my teaching, then make sure there's a PH in my name. I had one gentleman approach me right before tonight's service and asked me to clarify something I said last week. So because it doesn't fit necessarily in the teaching for the night, I'm going to handle it up front. Uh, if you remember last week, I mentioned that in the parable about Luke, uh, that Luke taught rather in Luke 16, there's a reference to spending the wealth of unrighteousness so that we might have friends welcome us into eternal dwellings. And that has a range of, of meaning. It's not exclusively to mean that we will see people we know, but it does include that meaning, that there will be those in eternity who we knew here who will recognize us. And one of the ways I wanted to prove that was in a very fleeting reference I made to King David. And the question I had was to re-explain what I meant by King David sitting as king again in Israel. Well, let me clarify. First of all, we know Christ is the king in the Messianic kingdom, in the millennial kingdom, not not David. But the scriptures are clear that David is there. And that makes sense, right? David's a believer. We would expect him to be there. And more importantly, he returns to his old job. Not king of the world. That remains Christ's role. But under Christ's authority, David remains prince. The scriptures call him prince of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel reconstituted, regathered, and existing eternally with Christ, as, long as, as well as with Gentile nations will have over them the prince, their prior king, David. Now, if we couldn't recognize one another in the next world, in eternity, then how would we know it's King David? 
the assumption I'm making is that we will have identities that can be known there as much as we do here. That was the point of my statement. I wish I could give you the scripture verses off the top of my head. I have given them. Those of you who are in my Revelation class will remember this topic. And the scriptures that speak about David being there and being in that role as prince over the nation of Israel were in that class. And if anyone is particularly interested, let me know and I'll email you those references. Well, enough of that. Let's go now into the teaching for tonight. I'll begin with prayer. Father, graciously, heavenly Father, I praise you and thank you so much that we are here again tonight. Father, I'm mindful that we gather as always because your Holy Spirit gives us a desire to gather with other believers and to worship you. And your word, Father, is the means by which we can do that. So I thank you, Father, that we come together tonight with a heart to worship drawn by the Holy Spirit and with a desire, even a hunger, for the Word of God. Let all that we do here, Father, glorify you. Let all that we say, Father, be according to your Holy Spirit's direction. Let all that we learn here, Father, be to our glory in conforming to Christ so that it would be to your glory for the work you've done in us. I praise you and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, then you remember we began a series, uh, or a teaching rather, within this series on the love of money. It's part of our sovereignty of God discussion. And so last week began the discussion of how God is sovereign over our finances. And I mentioned last week it would be one of two parts devoted to this topic, and partly because it's just so much information held in Scripture on this topic that I don't think I could do it in one night. And I also said I was going to direct this week's teaching a little bit more toward the topic of health rather than just wealth. And you'll see as we move through the topic tonight how related they really are. But I also said I would specifically address the issue of these teachers, the teachers that are out in churches throughout the country, throughout the world for that matter, teaching false, unbiblical perspectives in both these areas. And I will do that. But as always, I'm going to try to capture what the scriptures have to say on these topics by focusing on a passage, on some place in scripture that hopefully embodies the spirit of what the Bible has to say on these issues. But as I've always said, I can't cover everything. That's not my intention to cover everything. I'm not here to tell you everything the Bible has to say about the sovereignty of God in general, nor specifically on money or health. So please understand that. And since this is Part two, part two of this discussion on health and wealth, I think I need to briefly revisit with you a little bit of what we've been talking about, a little bit of what we ended with last week. And in fact, I want to pick up at the very end of the parable we studied last week. And it won't be the passage for tonight, of course, but it is the starting point for tonight's message. So Luke 16 is where we were last week, and we looked at the parable in the very beginning of that chapter. Jesus had just given... And I'm not going to reread it for tonight, but Jesus had just given a short parable in the beginning of Luke about a poor manager, about a manager who was soon to be fired. But he shrewdly finds a way to make good use of money that he was about to lose anyway, money he was never actually going to receive. He turned this fleeting money into favor, favor among men who did business with his master. And he did it so that some of them might be willing to be his friends and to help him once he lost his job. 
A very shrewd move on his part. Now, in the parable, Christ complimented the man. And what he said about the man was not that his poor management was worthy or that his scheming was worthy, but just the fact that he knew how to make the most of passing wealth. How he figured out a way to make something that was essentially worthless and was soon to disappear into something worthwhile, something that was lasting, at least for him. And then Christ made that stunning comparison, really the focus for the parable. He said, believers should be more like this manager. And at first glance, it seems counter to good thinking. Why would we want to be like a scheming man? But as we studied the parable, we realized that's not what Christ was saying when he compared us to this manager. He was comparing the manager's shrewdness in how he used fleeting wealth in order to make something lasting. And he said we should use that same wealth, the wealth we have in this world, this wealth that we have that's fleeting, that won't go with us, that's not eternal, that someday will burn up just like the rest of this world with it. And instead of storing it up, use it to make eternal friends, he says. In other words... Just like that manager turned his worthless unpaid bills into true gain, Christians should use the worthless wealth of this world to build up treasure in heaven. It's a simple idea, rarely put into practice. If we truly recognize the perishable nature of this world's wealth, we would never hesitate to use it to gain eternal riches. Consider what Christ said at the very end of that parable, starting in verse 10. He said, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in your use of unrighteous wealth, who's going to entrust you the true riches? Unrighteous wealth, remember, is not wealth from uh, inappropriate gain. It is wealth of this world in general. It is the wealth of the world versus true riches in heaven. And then he ends with this. If you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, then what will, uh, who will give you that which is your own? Maybe to put a punctuation on this, consider what Christ said in Matthew 13, 44. One verse, he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Your treasure in heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field because you can't see it. You can't even get to it, not now. But you can buy the field, so to speak. You can invest the money you have now in purchasing eternal riches. Not your salvation. That's not the point of the parable at all. But eternal riches, wealth in eternal terms, responsibility, opportunity, and perhaps even in some material sense. And as I ended last week, I challenged you to consider what it would take for you to live a life that truly reflected Christ's teaching in this parable. What would it take for you to do what he's asking you to do? Well, in a word, trust. Trust in God to provide for your needs here while you spend your time and resources seeking his kingdom and seeking his righteousness. You see how trust factors in? If I don't trust that he's going to provide for me what I need to eat, where, and where I live, then I spend my time trying to gain those things. But if I take him at his word and trust him to provide those things, I'm now freed up to use my wealth 
for eternal purposes. What would our church, in fact, what would our world look like if Christians were taught this and then followed it? You know what? We'd look as radical as Christ looked. Maybe we'd have as great an impact as he had. Now, at various times through this lesson, both last week and again this week, I said when I referred to this teaching, we were going to talk about not just your resources, your wealth, in other words, but also your health or more generally your effort, your, your use of your body, your service, but specifically how you care for your body as well. What, what does it mean to talk about health in the context of God's sovereignty? So I think it's time we transition to this part of the lesson to talk more about God's sovereignty over issues of health and the body. So spiritually speaking, here's the question for the night. How should we view our bodies and our health in light of God's sovereignty? How does our health and our desire for our body to function properly relate to God's sovereignty? And how is it connected to the issue of wealth? That's what we want to examine tonight. Well, as always, we're going to begin by establishing some basic principles out of God's word before we go into the passage. I hope you all realize God gives life, that every man and woman who's born is born because God determines they will be born, and God gave them the life they have. I'm not going to attempt to prove that to you. I hope that's self-evident if you study the word. But what might not be self-evident to you is what Job teaches us in Job chapter 14. In verse 1, he says this, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil, like a flower, he comes, uh, comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. You also open your eyes on him, O Lord, and bring him into judgment with yourself. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. And his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Since our days are determined... By God, the number of months is with God. Our number of months is with God. God has determined the number of our days in this world. In fact, some might read this and unknowingly confuse two related biblical principles. They might assume that what we're hearing in Job speaks merely of God's foreknowledge. In other words, that he knows how long our days will be. Well, that's true, but that's not what was said in those passages. Job makes clear that we're not just talking about God knowing the future. He says God has set or appointed man's limits. In other words, he says he has determined the number of our days. Not just knows them, but determined them. Moreover, at the very end, he says he's not going to allow us to pass that limit. I believe the more you consider that statement, the more radical it's going to sound. The more you consider that statement, the more radical your life will look. How much time do you spend concerning yourself about how long you will live? Matthew six twenty-seven. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? How much effort do you spend? How much money do you spend trying to lengthen your days? 
Well, given what we just read in Job, how successful do you think you're going to be? I didn't write this. Now, if you're struggling with what I just said, let me suggest it's because you've been inundated with incorrect teaching. Both in the world and in the pulpit in some cases. Maybe not here, but it's out there. So if the thought that you can't lengthen your life challenges you, then I'm glad you're here. Because there's something about the sovereignty of God you may not have known. He's sovereign over the length of your life. I think it's fair to say that the world, and I would argue even the church lately, has been obsessed with concerns of wealth. We said that last week. But if that's true, I also think it's fair to say that the church and the world are paranoid over the prospect of their declining health and impending death. We all know it. We all know what I'm talking about. Consider the vast amounts of money and effort that are spent by the world to avoid death, to forestall death, if it were even possible to avoid death. To end it. But, you know, even the unbelieving world knows you can't stop the Grim Reaper, as they put it. Death will come. I think even the most deceived of the unbelieving world would admit that. So they do the next best thing. The next best thing to avoiding death is pretending that you're avoiding it. They all want to look as if they're avoiding it. They want to make their bodies look like they're not growing old. They want to make their minds feel like they're still 20. Plastic surgery, anti-aging cosmetics. I mean, they're not necessarily wrong in and of themselves, of course. It's a matter of what you think you're doing it for. And the unbelieving world is trying to preserve the inevitable, prevent the inevitable. All of this stuff they do to give themselves the impression of eternal youth, if not eternal life. And all the while, they're doing it in a decaying body. You know, there's a reason why cheats and con artists of the olden days are called snake oil salesmen. It was because the most common and most successful way to cheat people out of their money came from trying to sell miracle cures, things we call snake oil, to a world that was desperate to cheat death. What really drives the world to behave this way? Why would the world care so much about avoiding death if they know it's inevitable? Well, in a word, fear. Fear of pain, fear of dependency on someone, fear of rejection because of their age, fear of death, ultimately, fear of judgment. And I don't think most unbelievers would actually articulate it that way. I don't think they'd actually admit that they feared judgment by the true living God. I don't know that it has to be a conscious thing. But in here, they know. God has given them a conscience for that region conscience for that reason and they have a fear that comes from sin and from the separation from God that that sin produced and of course they should fear Hebrews 10:31 says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God and therefore that fear should drive them the problem is it should drive them to Christ to confessing Christ. But for so many, it merely manifests itself as a pitiful exercise of sticking their fingers in a leaky dike. And then, as they do that, more 
leaks spring forth until the rising waters just slowly choke off the life in that mortal body of theirs. Now, the truly sad, the truly sad part about all of this, and here I am getting serious again, right? The truly sad part about all this is how much the church has come to look like this world. Just as it has in the area of wealth. And as believers, we have no business sharing in the fear of the world. Hebrews 2.14 Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, talking about Christ, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Christ took on flesh and blood and suffered through the death process. And when he was raised up, the father demonstrated his power over death, a power he grants to those who trust in his son's sacrifice. And by doing that, he rendered Satan powerless over Christians. Powerless. Not that he can't impact your life, but he has no power over you. How is Satan powerless over us because of that change? Because we no longer have reason to fear death. Because we know death brings something better than here, not worse. But as long as someone has reason to fear death, or thinks they do, then they're going to be consumed by a fear, and through that fear, Satan has control over them. Hebrews calls it a slavery. And let me show you how that works. Your fear of death, or the, let's put it in terms outside this building, for the unbelieving world, their fear of death drives them, drives them unbelievably to participate in the schemes of the evil one. Unknowingly. That fear of death and all the insecurities it produces, insecurities over money, insecurities over their health, insecurities over love. I'm getting old, I need to get married. Insecurities over power. If I'm not in charge, someone's going to get me. I'm almost 50 and I haven't been promoted yet. What am I going to have to do to get that promotion? Fear over fleeting time, fleeting opportunity, ultimately over the end of all life, drives us to commit all manner of sin if we're an unbeliever. But the writer of Hebrews says Christians have no business sharing in that fear. We have been freed from that kind of slavery. And we have no business fearing death or the decaying of this body because we look forward to its replacement. We want a different body than this one, if we understand what it means. And when we act, when we act like the world does, when we fear death and we follow the same schemes that they do to avoid a death that we have no fear of, then we are assuming the position of a slave again. Not in fact, not in reality, but in our minds and in our witness to the world. You know why so few Christians really affect their world, why their witness is so poor? Because you can't tell them from the world. Because you don't know who they are. They look just like the world. Exactly how are you going to have an influence on someone to believe what you believe if they can't tell there's any difference between what you believe and what they believe? 
But, you know, it's also on this basis of fear that so many false teachers have succeeded in gaining their audience. I want to take a brief moment to address this issue of the teachers before we move into tonight's passage. And as I said on the very first night, I think it's not my intent to name names. We're not against the people. We're against the teachings and against their methods. Because, you know, if we start criticizing a particular person today, then there's going to be someone different tomorrow and someone different the next day. We want to be aware of what they say, not who they are. These teachers, generally speaking, they know their audience's fears. They know that they have fear that they won't have enough money. They know they have fear that they won't be healthy and live long enough. They know these things, and they prey on them. These teachers tailor their messages to appeal to the interests of these people, to their fears, and to their ears. As I read before, 2 Timothy 4, chapter 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That's so many churches today, sadly sad to say. These teachers, they're tickling ears, which means they're saying things we want to hear. Or these churches want to hear things that appeal to our sinful, fearful natures. And they often avoid messages that will offend or disturb you. They tell us that God wants to make us rich and take away our illnesses. They tell us God wants to grant our wishes if we just ask him using the right words. Or if we hold the right thoughts. And as I said, they often avoid preaching the hard message of the gospel. Have you noticed that? I wouldn't encourage you to spend much time listening to them, of course, but on occasion I do, just to hear what they're saying. And they avoid the gospel message because it does offend, as Christ said it would. Perhaps this insight will give you some additional explanation. After he was released from prison, a very repentant Jim Baker, remember Jim and Tammy Baker? After he was released, a very different man than he went in. He came out with this account of how his ministry used to focus on false teaching concerning prosperity. I want you to listen to what he says here. He says, I'd always quoted 3 John verse 2, saying, above all things, God wants you to prosper. I love that scripture. It looks great on a TV screen when you're raising funds. And I interpreted it as God wants you to be rich. But when I got to the words of John's letter, I said, now, this doesn't make sense. So I took the word prosper apart in the Greek, and I found that it's made up of two words. The first word means good or well, and the second means road. It's a progressive word. It's like a journey. So here's John saying, basically, beloved, I want you to have a good journey through life as your soul has a good journey to heaven. It's a greeting Building theology on that is like building the church on have a nice day. I began to look up all the scriptures used in prosperity teachings, such as give and it shall be given unto you. When I put that scripture back in its context, I found that Christ was teaching on forgiveness, not money. He was teaching us that by the same measure we forgive, we will be forgiven. I had gotten my sermons from other people. The Bible warns about the shepherds who get their messages from each other. I think today the reason we have another gospel and another Jesus being preached 
is because men have gotten their sermons from each other and from motivational teaching. A lot of what's being taught today is simply motivational teaching with a few scriptures put to it. Amen? You know, that last line sends chills up my spine, literally. Consider how many churches now are willing to jump on board the latest teaching fad sweeping the country, effectively relinquishing this pulpit over to prefabricated sermon series that are designed more to sell books than to glorify God. Pardon me if I offend someone. It's truly frightening to me. My prayer to God continually is that if I ever use any opportunity he gives me in any pulpit for any purpose other than to preach this, I pray he takes away those opportunities. I pray he takes away my calling. And I wish more men in this position felt that way. Now, I'm sure it's the case that for a few of these teachers... There's a truly evil man behind the scenes, an unbeliever preying on the body of Christ. But I don't think that's most of them, frankly. In fact, that doesn't offer me much comfort at all because what I'm really concerned about is how many honest and well-meaning pastors and teachers who've been impressed by the success of these men are now beginning to imitate them and mimic their teaching in their own churches. This is a dangerous trend. Dangerous trend, brothers and sisters, because it means not only do God's sheep have the wolves to be concerned about now, now, but now even their shepherds themselves have begun to go astray and lead their flocks to dead ground rather than to good pasture. And again, I've never sat in here on a Sunday service, so I don't have Castle Hills in mind as I say any of these things. I'm speaking about the church universal. Shame on the church. And shame on us if we allow this descent into apostasy to go unchecked. And I pray we have the courage to be like Hezekiah, who removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah in response to the reading of God's word. Okay, well now I know that some of you are probably exercising great patience with me right now. Because, for one thing, you probably know there is another side to the story of health and God's sovereignty than the one I presented so far. Another side of this story in Scripture. And you're right. And so that discussion needs to be taken up. And that will lead us into our passage tonight. Let me begin by saying Scripture does give clear instructions concerning the need for us to respect our bodies. Absolutely. And to do so with reverence. And there are many well-known verses. I'm not going to read them all, but let me just give you a couple Ones I know you're familiar with. 1 Corinthians 6.18 Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. If you do not know, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Similar things are said by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. All of those talking about how we should treat our bodies carefully because it is the temple of God. He says this in Romans 6:11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead 
and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So obviously, the condition of our bodies is not meaningless to God, though he set the number of our days. And at times, we also know from his word that he intends to heal us by prayer, by asking for his intervention. And he does that so that he may show his compassion and mercy on us. Fair enough. But so often, our theology in this area glosses over the details. The details that we just read. And we run to the conclusion that our body's healthiness is a scriptural precept of God. And we often cite passages like the ones I just read in order to prove that God holds the condition of our body to be supremely important. The health of our body to be extremely important to Him. Did you pay close attention to those passages? And the other ones I haven't read say the same thing. Did they talk about seeking physical health? Did they talk about preserving physical strength, protecting the beauty of the body? Did they persuade us to strive for a long life? Did they talk about what we should eat? Did they talk about health at all? If you listen carefully, you'll notice they spoke about refraining from sinning with our bodies. Don't sin with your body. That's what it said. Paul instructs us in Romans, for example, flee immorality. In the 1 Corinthians passage I read to you, 1 Corinthians 6.18, he says, especially flee immorality committed with the body because he says the Holy Spirit dwells in you and therefore he owns your body. And when we use our body for immoral purposes... We are essentially bringing the Holy Spirit along with us into our sin. Making him an unwilling witness to our depravity. Think of that just for a moment. You know how much God hates sin. You know how much he detests being in the presence of sin. So much so that we can't do that without death. He must condemn sin. And yet, he's put his Holy Spirit in you. And then when you sin with your body, he becomes an unwilling participant of of sorts. Not that he's culpable. Not that he, he has any sin in him but that he has to sit there and watch. That should detest you as much as it does God. So our instruction from Paul, in all these verses people commonly quote for the purpose of saying the condition of our bodies matters to God, all of these verses tell us to honor the Holy Spirit's presence in our bodies by fleeing immorality and using our bodies to glorify God. Amen. So I need to say this plainly. Apart from sin and sin issues like gluttony or immorality or eating food sacrificed to idols, apart from those kinds of issues, Scripture has almost nothing to say about how our bodies are to be kept in terms of health. A few things come to mind, like Paul telling Timothy to use a little wine for his stomach, right? Or issues of eating or drinking out of the Old Testament, under the law. But if you were to go back to the law and try to use it as a justification for God's concern over your dietary health, then you don't understand the law, frankly. First of all, Christians are not bound to that law. And what's really ironic is those who might quote it and say, see, therefore we should care about what we eat. How many of those people are actually following the dietary rules of the law? None I've found. 
And in truth, the dietary law is just like the rest of the law. It's a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ by demonstrating our unrighteousness and our inability to keep the law. It's not a proof that God wants us to live a certain kind of healthy lifestyle. When we put all this together, we have one view chiefly out of Scripture when it comes to health, and that is we're not to focus on the earthly body. We're to keep our minds on eternal things. Knowing that God is sovereign because he sets the limit of our life, He expects us to use our body to glorify Him. And since Paul compares our bodies to the temple of God, we ought to ask the question, what's the purpose of the temple of God? It was to worship and glorify God. So, are you using your body to bring glory to God? That's the real question. We know we are to devote all we can in our finances to the kingdom and not storing up that treasure here on earth. So if I take that same biblical principle as it's been taught on finances and let's apply it to bodily issues, to bodily health issues. And so if I were to do that, I would have to come to the conclusion that I'm to devote my body to serving God just in the same way, with the same commitment, the same energy as I'm willing to devote my resources, my finances, and do that to the glory of God, to the building of the kingdom. Now, what would that look like? Well, that brings us to our passage tonight. And we'll cover it in two parts. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 5. Verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God said, or for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body in the body, the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. This is probably an understatement, so I'll say that up front, but Paul was a pretty important guy in the early church. In fact, there probably isn't a man after Christ who could be considered any more important to the church than Paul. I remember reading one article not long ago about Paul. It was written by an unbelieving Jew. So you have to keep that in mind. And he asserted that it was actually more accurate to say that Paul founded the Christian church than it is to say Jesus did. And maybe from an unbeliever's perspective, that makes some sense because of how much impact Paul had through his writings. Now we know different. Without Jesus, there is no church, nor any reason for one. 
But I think Paul himself knew how important his ministry was going to be. I think when Christ gave him the revelations he did, it included a full understanding of how important his ministry would be to the church. So, if ever there was a man who could claim that preserving the health of his body was the most important thing he could do to advance the kingdom of God, it would have been Paul. If there was ever somebody on this earth who could legitimately claim that the most important thing I can do to help God and to help his kingdom is to make sure I'm healthy, to make sure I live a long time, to make sure I don't do anything that might put my body at risk. If there was anyone who could ever say that, it had to be Paul, right? Name somebody whose physical life mattered more to the church than Paul, excepting Christ, of course. I don't know of anyone. I mean, in fact, could you hear Paul's words now if he agreed with that thinking? If he was kind of bought into the current way of teaching in church pulpits around the country, he'd say something like this, I think. He'd write a letter and say, Therefore, it is with sorrow that I must remain here in Ephesus rather than embark on that long and difficult journey to greet the brothers in Macedonia. For I must preserve my strength so that I might minister to the saints for as many years as I am able. Doesn't sound like Paul. But that makes sense, wouldn't it, given our modern view? If Paul had shared that view, in other words, if he had agreed with it, if it had been the biblical view, then I imagine we would have seen him writing things like that. Or the other popular view today on health, the other thing I often hear coming from pulpits around the country, would have had Paul saying something like this, a view that kind of pushes the prosperity gospel or the word faith movement in this way, he would have said, I have this thorn in my side, but I have cast it out in the name of Jesus. And because I had enough faith, God will heal me of this affliction. Because he desires that all his children be free of distresses. I'm pretty good at that, actually. I might actually have a career. I never considered that. Now, that's not what Paul said. We know that. Here's what Paul said. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. He says this. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Given to him. A messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And look what Paul did. Paul did exactly what the preachers on TV say he should do. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Well, of course, just like the preachers on TV would tell us, it went away, right? Next verse, verse 9. And God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Now look at what Paul says to that. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses. With insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The truth is, Paul lived a miserable life in earthly terms, in worldly terms. In fact, I would say if you took a poll, four out of five doctors would probably say that if you do the things Paul did to himself, you're suicidal. If there was any way he could put his body in harm's way, subject it to misery, 
to wear it down, to undermine its health. Paul did it for the sake of the glory of God in the kingdom. He was stoned. He was beaten. He was jailed under the worst of circumstances. He probably walked thousands of miles in poor footwear. I'm sure he didn't get the best of nutrition and, and all that goes with that. Did he care? No. Not a bit. Did he care when he hurt? Did he care that his body didn't have food? He had the same normal bodily desires you and I do. So, yes. But did it matter to him spiritually? Not a bit. Our passage today, as I've read it, begins with a sobering reminder of what true devotion to a calling requires of us. Paul says that though God fills us with the light of the Holy Spirit, he intentionally has placed it in earthen vessels. Lamps in the day that Paul wrote this letter were often constructed out of poor, crude pottery. But the pottery was made very thin. It was translucent. So you could put oil in the pot, put a wick of some kind in the oil, light it, and the lamp of the, the light of the, of the flame inside this pot would actually shine through the vessel because it was so thinly made. And he compares our own physical bodies to that clay vessel. You know, the only reason those vessels, those clay lamps in Paul's day, the only reason those things had any value at all, to anyone at all, was because of what was inside them. The light and the life of Christ inside us, in other words. In fact, if you were to find one of these vessels lying around, empty of its oil, no light inside it, it was worthless. You wouldn't even bother to pick it up. You cast it aside. And in fact, God's purpose for his container, for his light to being weak and being unimpressive is so that the light can be seen all the more clearly for what it is, the power of God. Look at what Paul says in verses 8 through 11 in that passage we read out of 2 Corinthians 4. He says, our earthly body, in verse 8, is constantly suffering for the sake of of ministry, not just him, because he speaks in the plural. We are afflicted in every way. He's speaking about anyone who takes on the role of ministry that he took on. We are afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. If you go into ministry, folks, that's what you should expect. But these afflictions, Paul assures us, are not going to defeat us because that's not their purpose. Their purpose is not to defeat us. Instead, the purpose is something altogether different, and I would hope it actually would be surprising to you as you learn this. We who live in Christ, Paul says, are being delivered over to these afflictions so that Christ's strength in us may be shown, so that God will receive glory. But who is it that's delivering us? That's the surprising part. You notice the word in the Greek, delivering over. In the way it's phrased in the Greek, it makes it clear that the one who is delivering us over to these afflictions, is the same one who is trying to glorify Christ. Is it the enemy then? Is the enemy doing this to us? Does he have that kind of control to us? And more importantly, is he trying to glorify Christ? No. No, it is the Holy Spirit himself, God in other words, who is doing this to Paul. God is delivering Paul over to afflictions, persecution, the trials that come with ministry. That's what God is doing to Paul. And God says, Paul says God is subjecting 
ministers to these afflictions, not for the purpose of destroying them, merely to ensure that their weaknesses are always evident so that Christ's strength is always visible. The most convicting part of Paul's message comes in verse 12, in this first half. He says in a very curious way, death works in us so life works in you. It's a paradox. In fact, in the Greek tradition, it was very common to try to teach a point using this rhetorical technique. It's basically drawing a comparison through contrast, which is why it's a paradox. How can something compare but also be contrasting? Here's what it means. Paul says that the more faithful he is, and others like him, to obey God's will and minister, in this case, to the Corinthian church, the more he is faithful to do that, the more he is faithful to obey God's command, the more he's going to suffer physically. Think about that for a minute. We find it hard enough as it is, in many cases, to evangelize our neighbor because we're afraid they'll be offended. And Paul says the more you do that, the more persecuted you're going to be. The more you'll suffer, not less. And then he says, yet the more I do this, the more the Corinthian church will prosper spiritually because of the apostles' witness, because of them witnessing of their faithfulness to God. The more the Corinthian church saw Paul sacrificing himself for their sake, the more it grew their faith in God. Do you understand what Paul's saying here? Do we understand it? God is well pleased to subject us and our bodies to earthly persecution so that as we persevere through it, God receives glory and the body of Christ is edified. So do you think that the health and protection of our physical body is God's top priority? Then why is it so often ours? Because I want you to consider for a moment what it means if you spend your life avoiding anything that might harm the body. It means you're avoiding opportunities to minister, ultimately. Let's go to the second part of our passage and see if we can't make this a bit clearer saying in the same book, but we're going to move forward just a few verses to verse 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For all these things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, 
being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul begins that long passage I read by saying he does not regret the abuse his body is taking for the sake of this church, even as much trouble as this church caused him, as you know. And he says he's done all that he's done for their sake and for the glory of God. What do you think Paul would say to a man or woman who stands in a pulpit today and tries to convince you that God's first and foremost concern is that your body not have any injury, any sickness, any trial, any uncomfort, and that you need to ask him for those things because he's so willing and prepared to give them to you? Paul says the fact that his body is falling apart doesn't matter to him because he knows who's in charge. He knows that it's part of God's plan that he suffer in this work of the ministry. He says plainly in verse 5 of chapter 5, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God. One thing is true here. Either God cares mostly about you being wealthy and healthy, or he cares about the things Paul says he cares about. They're completely contrary to one another. He knows that he's experiencing trauma to his body, but he knows it's necessary. It's a part of God's plan because it diminishes Paul's apparent strength while glorifying God. And you know why that's so important? Because he's not trying to convert people into believers in Paul. He's trying to convert people into believers in God, in Christ specifically. So if they're too busy admiring how strong he is, they may not get the message. But if they look at this pitiful, weak, persecuted man with a thorn in his side... They know it's not him. That's often the testimony I provide to the people who know me so well. They know this isn't me up here. You know, if Paul were to have lived his life emphasizing his physical health, he would have been doing exactly the same thing in that context as a man who stores up his material wealth on earth. Both would have been storing up treasure on earth instead of in heaven. And think about it, when you avoid those opportunities to minister, as I mentioned earlier, because of the discomfort it might cause, because of the physical stress it might produce, or when you can't find time for it because you're too busy serving yourself, serving your own physical interests, your own wealth interests, you're too busy with your full-time activities, too busy growing your pocketbook, too busy shrinking your waistline, it's all going to be burned up, your body included. And it's falling apart despite what you're doing. We're nearing the end, trust me. But consider the rest of Paul's words in verse 17. He says, this affliction is light and momentary, but the rewards are eternal and weighty. And we will be willing, I would argue, to do such things things as Paul when we see our circumstances with eyes for eternity. Not fixed on the things of this world, the temporal things of this world. He says this body we have here, he calls it a tent. He says it's temporary. It's not worth holding on to. 
It will be torn down one day. God's going to replace it with something eternal. And he gave us a down payment to prove that he's going to do that. He gave us the Holy Spirit. But the last thing he says, and the thing I will end with, he says, before you get that new body, there's going to be a test. I know we hate tests. But you can't miss this one. You can't stay home sick. This test is called the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to be examined at this test. We're going to be shown for who we are and what we did in this world. And we're going to particularly be judged according to what he gave us. Someone who's been given a strong body with long life is expected to do more than someone who's been given a weak body with short life. Someone who's been given much wealth is expected to have greater impact on the body of Christ than someone who's been given little wealth. And with the resources he gave us and with the opportunities he gives gives us to serve with our bodies to glorify him, we'll be measured by what we did. Now, a good thing if you're a student is to take a practice test you know, before the real one, the one that counts. So I ask you, Christ is standing before you. It's test time. Why don't you answer that question for yourself right now? Which prosperity gospel are you holding to and living by right now? The one that believes that we must seek wealth, pray for wealth, strive for wealth, store up wealth, so that in this world we will feel rich and satisfied? The prosperity gospel that says we have to protect our health, worry over our health, demand God's healing and preservation of our life to the last possible moment so that our strength may be noticed in the eyes of the world. The prosperity gospel taught in so many deceived churches around the world that place our selfish desires and the fleeting nature of this world above eternity. Is that how you've lived? Or are you prepared to believe and to live out the true biblical view of prosperity and health? The one that trusts God to keep his word in providing for your needs. The one that teaches contentment regardless of what God chooses to give you. The one that understands that our willingness to spend the wealth of this world on the kingdom is God's test of our trustworthiness with eternal riches. The one that does not seek to protect our health and our strength to our own glory, but is willing to sacrifice it if necessary for the sake of the kingdom and the glory of God. And the one that sees this world with eyes for eternity, the one that understands the sovereignty of God. Which gospel do you believe? And what are you prepared to do with what you believe? Last week I ended with Psalms 49. Tonight I will end with Psalms 90. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, from, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight is like yesterday when it passes by, or is a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. 
We have finished our years like a sigh. For the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord. How long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to your children. And let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Father, we end tonight in prayer because we do, Father, have a heavy heart. Father, we cannot learn the truth of your scripture and not be convicted. We cannot yield, Father, to the power of the Holy Spirit in us and not change. We cannot recognize your sovereignty, Father, without also recognizing the truth of your word. And Father, your word tells us that you've numbered our days. That we cannot add even an hour to our life by worry, by effort, by fretting, Father, about our health and our wealth, by focusing on the temporal things of this world. And yet, so often, Father, we do. So often, Father, we confess that in those decision moments, we choose to do something, Father, that has only earthly impact, not eternal. And we pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit in each of us would give us a new desire. One, Father, to follow your word, to follow your leading, to give you glory, to invest in eternity. Father, it is by your love that we have the Holy Spirit and salvation by your Son. It is by your love, Father, that we have many good gifts. And yet our sinful nature, Father, drives us to want even more. I pray, Father, we would have contentment, that our trust in you, Father, would reign, and that our life, Father, would reveal that trust. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.